All right, everybody, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10. While you're turning there, I just want to point out that Bill Ulmer had the thought, I want to be able to see the teacher better, but instead of sitting in the front, he put a chair in the exact middle of the very back, setting the exact opposite of a good example for the rest of you. So there you go. Absolute proof that no, in fact, he is not actually perfect, that he does, in fact, make mistakes from time to time. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This, uh, we finished a couple weeks ago, and last week too, we, we had 8 and 9, and those dealt with the subject of giving, and it was kind of its own little section, kind of set apart. We come to chapter 10, and it really digs into Paul and his um, defense against the attacks made by the Judaizers, these false teachers, these um, uh, spurious um, uh, purveyors of, of false doctrine and attackers of his character and doctrine. And so he defends himself in various ways in chapters 10 and 11 and really in 12 too. And then he wraps everything up in 13. So let's dive right in. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence, that's Paul about himself, who in presence am base among you, but being absent am bold toward you. One thing you have to know, especially when you get to this part of the letter, is it is just dripping. You could squeeze it and it would just ring out of it with sarcasm. Paul uses a lot of sarcasm in this text. It's kind of obvious once you start looking at it from the big picture. And like, what is he saying? Why is he saying this? And why is he saying it like that? And then it kind of just unlocks it like the Rosetta Stone when you realize, oh, he's being snarky. That makes perfect sense now. And he's attacking them on the grounds of their words and what their criticisms of him, of him are. And he's pointing out the ridiculousness of them. So, for example, one of the presumed criticisms that they are leveling against Paul, in fact, not even presumed, he will flat out say this in a second, is that, well, Paul, he talks a big game when he writes a letter. His letters are big and his letters are bold and his letters are audacious. But then if you hear him in person, he's kind of timid, he's kind of quiet, he's kind of reserved. He doesn't have the same big, you know, boisterousness that he has when he's writing his letters. And they would use that against him. They would say he talks a big talk, but he doesn't walk the walk or vice versa. Uh, no, that would be right. He talks the talk, but when you see him in person, he doesn't walk the walk. That's the criticism of him. So Paul takes that criticism and he uses it and he says, I'm going to approach you with the two words that would have been said in derision about him, meekness and gentleness. Oh, that Paul, he's meek and meekness is weakness. That Paul, he's too gentle and gentleness is cowardice. Meekness is not weakness and gentleness is not cowardice. Meekness is a choice to restrain yourself. Gentleness is a choice not to lash out at others, but instead to be uh, compassionate and helpful and kind toward others. Paul says, I'm going to approach you with those two words in the gentleness of Christ, with the meekness of Christ. So if you want to turn meekness and gentleness into pejoratives, they belong to Christ first. He owns those qualities. Jesus was a meek being. Jesus was a gentle person. And Paul says, I want to be like him when I grow up. So that's how I will approach you. He says, in presence, I may appear to you to be, my Bible says, base, humble, low, down. I may appear just way down there. Of your you know, top 10 list of great public speakers, Paul may not crack your top 10. Corinthians, I've never heard him speak, so I can't say that. The Corinthians might have said, eh, I've heard better. I've heard more enthusiastic. I've heard more bombastic. Paul says, hey, that's not, my, that's not my job. That's not my business. That's not my ability. That's not what I do. 
I may be like that in presence, and in absence I may appear very bold. That's the accusation. But I beseech you, verse 2, that I may not be bold when I'm present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. This is Paul's answer to his critics. He says he is perfectly capable if the necessary need occurs. Not if the mood strikes. If the need occurs, it's necessary for him, and he will therefore be bold. Not lashing out at everyone, but targeting specifically those who are challenging his apostolic authority. If you don't think Paul can be bold, if you don't think Paul is capable of putting someone in their place, just ask Elemis, who was last seen Groping in the dark because he couldn't see anymore. Acts chapter 13. You challenge an apostle, boom, you struck blind. And that apostle was Paul. So, as Teddy Roosevelt would say, Paul would speak um, softly, but he would carry a big stick with his letters. And that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to turn that into an accusation against him, he says, I can show you boldness if you, if you require it. Because you think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. That's the end of verse 2. You are acting as if we care about what the outward appearance looks like. You are acting as if we care how we come across to other people. But we are not the ones who are putting stock into the outward appearance. We are not the ones who are putting too much effort and care and concern into how we sound and how we look and how other people perceive us. That kind of shallowness and superficiality belongs to those guys. Through projection, they're attacking us for it. But no, that belongs to them. We don't care about that sort of thing. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, I'm a physical person living a physical life, we do not war after the flesh. The fight that we fight and the way that we fight it is not in a worldly domain. It's not in a worldly realm. We don't use worldly weapons. We fight a spiritual battle. And if you're fighting a spiritual battle, it doesn't matter if you're big and boisterous or if you're meek and timid. Because your words that you speak to fight that battle don't come from you anyway. They come from God. And the power is in his word, not in your words. That's a real man. A real man does not fight with everyone who insults him. A boy does that. A man walks away or a man leaves the truth to stand for itself. Paul has the truth. So he leaves it to do his fighting for him. i got a question. Yes, sir. Does that mean we pick and choose our battles? Does that mean we pick and choose our battles? Yes. Yeah. I would, I would encourage you to choose no battles. That's what I would, my advice would be. It's always more productive and more Christian to let someone else make a fool of themselves being aggressive. You be meek like your master. And this is Paul. Nevertheless, Paul is not just Paul here. Paul is not just some random guy. He's not even just some random Christian. Paul is an apostle. He is in a position of authority. And his position of authority is directly being attacked. Otherwise, he wouldn't be writing this letter in the first place. He would, as a Christian ought, just be letting it go, leaving it to Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. But he, he can't do that. He's being compelled by the Holy Spirit to write his defense, even as much as he feels foolish to do so, as he'll say in a couple of chapters. Verse 4, speaking about physical warfare, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Just because Paul does not fight a physical battle does not mean Paul does not have great strength. It's just his strength is not in the world, it is in the spirit. And if that is your strength, you can tear down whole statues, you can tear down whole monuments, you can rip down whole walls, you can conquer and, and conquest whole kingdoms. You can, he says here, pull down strongholds, fortifications of all sorts. It's a metaphor, it's hyperbole, it's just this idea of you think that my not using physical strength makes me weak. No, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. The strength that I have far outclasses physical strength. I could tear down anything, but 
That's not my battle. Mine is a spiritual battle. And in the spiritual warfare, with the spiritual sword of the Spirit, I can tear down all spiritual strongholds occupied by the devil. That leads to verse 5. Casting down imaginations, my Bible says, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and brings into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Do you see what Paul does? Paul, Paul loves his metaphors. He loves his colorful writing. And you can watch him in his writing. Like sometimes you just kind of unfocus your eyes and just look at the writer and the way the writer writes and you can see the personality of Paul in this case. And what Paul loves to do is he loves to take a metaphor and just run with it. And he'll keep coming back to that metaphor long after you think you should have moved on. He keeps finding new ways to mine that simple metaphor. Well, the metaphor here is carnal warfare, physical warfare. So he uses that kind of terminology. He uses that kind of mentality in describing the spiritual fight. In this spiritual fight of ours, we cast down strongholds, but not strongholds of stone and brick and mortar, strongholds of the mental, strongholds of the mind. He says, imaginations, false ideas, false doctrines. These Judaizers are not holed up behind a star-shaped fortress. They're not hiding in a bunker somewhere. They are, hiding, they are fighting in a spiritual realm using spiritual ideas, false ones, but words, philosophies, and Paul says, that's my playground. That's my battleground. And I don't have to be big and boisterous. I don't have to be big and bold. I can be the meek, quiet, timid, maybe stuttering Stanley Paul when I'm speaking in person. But I can use the words that God gives me to completely decimate the stronghold of your spiritual ideas because they are false ideas, imaginations. They are high fortresses, high things that exalts itself because you're not exalting yourself above some other kingdom but above the very knowledge of God. You're not going to outthink God. And Paul has the mind of God on his side because it's the mind of God that's inspiring him. Yes, sir? I don't think you're too much worried what they said about him. It's more they're worried of the church, the damage they were going to do to the church there in Corinth and all of the surrounding areas, don't you? I mean, I, just personally, you wouldn't have cared. I don't think, yeah, I, listen, I think Paul does not care what you say about Paul. But he will go on to say later in this letter, that he does not want to have to talk about these things because he has to talk about himself. But he will talk about them because you mentioned attacking the church, yes, but they're attacking an apostle whose job it is to, to oversee the church on earth. So that's the, that's the attack. Paul, Paul just happens to be the unlucky person who has to defend this position. If they were going after John or Peter, Paul would be just as forceful. He'd be saying all these things. He'd be more comfortable doing it because he'd be able to defend someone else. But instead he has to talk about himself and he doesn't want to have to do that. But he's, he's describing it as if he has to fight this battle for the kingdom and for the apostleship that Christ has thrust him into. And by the way, Paul does not see the apostleship as this perk, as this powerful position title, as this throne that he gets to sit on with a funny white hat and, and bark orders to people in the language they don't speak. He sees the apostleship as his payback to God for all the sin that he did before he was saved. This is this burden that he has to carry, that he's willing to do to... to um, I say payback for lack of a better phrase, to pay God back for all the sin that he did. You don't have to do that. Your sins are washed away. But that's the mentality of Paul, and it comes through a lot in his writings. So he doesn't see it as a perk. He sees it as a, a job he has to do with great weight of responsibility. So end of the verse 5. And what, what a conquering army does, they bring into captivity those that they defeat. Paul says, I will defeat you with the Spirit's words inspiring me and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. It's very militaristic, but in the context, it's just winning an argument. That's how it distills down to. I will win this argument 
on behalf of the church and on behalf of my apostleship. Verse 6. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The enemies of the gospel should not cease to fight or do not cease to fight against God. Therefore, the friends of the gospel cannot cease to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in, in the midst of that fight, keep in mind, God's already won the war, but each of us are fighting a, a specific battle. And if you slack off, if you stop pushing against the tide, you very well could be overtaken. So here Paul speaks of a readiness to revenge all disobedience. Listen, that's not just um, false teachers he's talking to. He's talking to those who are swallowing their lies. So if these Corinthians want to keep going down this road and they want to listen to these false teachers and they want to agree with them, yes, I guess Paul really wasn't what we, th what we thought he was. And we're not going to listen to Paul anymore. And we're going to follow this Judaizer philosophy. Then he will, if he has to, come there. And he will come there not with meekness but with boldness. And he will come there with the power of an apostle, which is the power of Christ on earth, with revenge on his mind, with revenge at the ready, readiness to revenge, their disobedience. That's not a threat. That's a warning. And I know people like to use that like it's some uh, action movie one-liner, but there is a distinct difference between a threat and a warning. A threat is given by somebody who wants a fight and who feels confident they can win the fight. A warning is given by someone who has the ability to win the fight but doesn't want to fight, who wants to beg you off, who wants a peaceful solution, so gives a warning so there won't be a fight. The one who makes a threat wants a fight. The one who makes a warning doesn't. Paul does not want to fight. But if you challenge him and if you don't repent, Corinth, it won't, it won't even be a fight. It's not going to be ten rounds. He's going to come in there with apostolic power, and he's going to put them in their place. Verse 7. Do you look on things after the outward appearance, he asks, not rhetorically, I, I, I would assume. It's not, this question is not coming out of nowhere. They are, they are challenging Paul on these superficial terms, because once you start fighting on the battlefield of ideas, Paul's already won. He's got God on his side. So do you, are you just looking at things on the outward appearance? If anyone trusts in himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. If you want to judge somebody, whether they belong to Christ or not, based on what they look like, you'll never determine anything. But if you judge whether someone is a Christian based on a Christian standard, and what is that? Do they live by the book? Do they teach the book? Do they follow the book? then you will know who is a Christian and who is not. You will know who is faithful and who is not. And you will know these guys are not teaching the book. These Judaizers, these false teachers are teaching their opinions, their philosophies, their additions onto the new law. They're grabbing a grab bag of the parts they liked of the old law and stitching them on like Frankenstein's monster onto the new law. And you'll immediately see that ain't Bible. But if you follow Bible, you'll see what I'm teaching you is in harmony and in line with everything else that you've ever been taught. You'll see who is Christ's and who is not. Verse 8. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord has given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. I don't want to have to talk about myself anymore. I don't want to have to spend all of this good time that God has given me to defend the apostleship of myself or Peter, Andrew, James, John, etc. anymore. But if I have to, so be it. I will not be ashamed to defend that which is right. And when you're in the right, you should be willing to stand for what is right. But that doesn't mean he doesn't like doing it. It's just he's prepared to do it if he has to do it. Verse 9. That I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. Dripping with sarcasm. I don't want to be scary in my letters. 
I don't, I don't want to freak you out with my letters because that's what they're saying, that I'm big and scary in my letters. I don't want to seem as if I can terrify you by letters. If I need to, I can come terrify you in person. I don't want to have to do that. I can show you the terror of my letters in the flesh. But I don't want to have to do that. By the way, this would not be the first time he's made a warning like this. 1 Corinthians 4, he rebuked them there too. And he said, you don't want me, I, you don't want me to come there and come there with the rod when I could come with an olive branch, metaphorically speaking. I can come with the, with the leather belt of a dad's discipline, but I don't want to have to do that. I can come with gentleness. 2 Corinthians 10.10 10. For his letters, they say, see, this is not coming from nowhere. His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence, eh, it's weak. His speech is not a lot to write home about. Mine Bible says contemptible. What does yours say? Of no account. Of no account? It's nothing to write home about. It's, there's nothing, no, not, no pun intended, you wouldn't, write, you wouldn't write home about it. This guy who's big in his letters, when you hear him, not worth putting in a letter. He's not very impressive. Okay, my answer to that is, and so? One of the most powerful, one of my personal favorite, most sound, knew the Bible, knew multiple translations of the Bible, backwards and forwards. I'm talking Old Testament, New Testament. You start the verse, you can finish the verse, tell you the context, and give you the teaching, give you 45 minutes on the spot. A student of N.B. Hardiman himself, not that that matters, but just to show you how old he is and how long he's been around, just died recently. Robert R. Taylor, Jr., preached in Ripley, Mississippi for 20 years, preached in Ripley, Tennessee. After that, for another 60 or so years, a legend. And he grew up with a stutter, still had it, I mean, his entire life. If you, heard, if you talk to him outside of the pulpit, he would still stutter. But the way he would preach his sermons, because he had such a compulsion to preach, was he would memorize his material. He would write the sermons, he would memorize them, and he would play them back on uh, on a little homemade vinyl recorder. He would play a little vinyl record of himself back to memorize them. And later, he adopted cassette tape and the modern technology. And he would play back his sermons and he would repeat them, recite them until he could memorize them. And I have heard him, and he would he would not use hand gestures. One time, he raised his hand to make a gesture, and everyone freaked out because that's the most dramatic he'd ever been. But he would just fold his hands like this. And he had this very flat, monotone voice, and he would just talk like this, and he would just continue on like that, and he would look from side to side, and every now and then he might raise a finger, and he would all pause and say, did he just do that? Yes, he did. And he would just quote the Bible. And he would just, you got to pay attention to every word he says, because he barely will breathe. Does that sound familiar? And he would just keep going, except I can be animated, and I can keep you in it. But you've got to want to listen to this guy. And if you do, it's just the pure Bible. And he, I've heard him sometimes, he would start to stutter, and he would, and he would, you would see him rewind the tape in person and continue on. And that's the way he had to preach. And if, if you didn't care about the Bible, if you didn't care about gospel preaching, and you didn't care about gospel preachers, you'd listen to that guy and you'd think, what's the big deal? But if you love Jesus Christ, and you love the Word of God, and you heard this man preach it, you would be falling in love with Jesus all over again. Because you care about the message, not the messenger. Oh, Paul. Oh, Paul. He's big and bad in his letters, but when you hear him in person, he's no big deal. Well, so what? His message is just as weighty and powerful as they claim his speech is. Verse 11. Let such a one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will be also indeed when we are present. That is a threat. It's a threat, the kind of threat that God can make, or in this case, the man standing in the place of Christ can make an apostle who has the right to say, if you do this, lest you repent, I will come and I will come with vengeance. And so this is a threat. And there's nothing wrong with that because he has the power to make that threat. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. So again, verse 11. If you think that, 
If you think that the only weight you would give a preacher is how impressive he sounds and not the words he uses, which is why you're listening to these Judaizers in the first place. If that's where you're going to be taken in, you want to follow down that path, then, then I, who in your estimation am bold in my letters, will come in person and be bold in person. That's a threat. That should give you a chill right down the middle of your spine. Twelve. For we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves, and comparing themselves among themselves, are not, what's your Bible say? Wise. These guys love to talk about themselves. And they love to brag about themselves. And they love to share their credentials and their qualifications and their, their accolades that they have received from each other. Oh, I just got this award for being this special famous teacher. Who gave it to you? This guy, my best friend. And he just got one too that I just gave him. They love to compare themselves with themselves and acclaim each other by each other and pat each other on the back. Just walking in a circle, patting each other on the back and talking about how great they are. Meanwhile, everything that comes out of the mouth is false teaching. Paul says, we are not going to be like that. We are not going to waste our time bragging and talking about ourselves. It is always the arrogant person who has nothing to say but about himself. We dare not make ourselves of that number or compare ourselves and commend ourselves with other people. That's not why we're here. Verse 13. But we will not boast of the things without or outside of our measure. What's that mean? It means God has given him the standard to measure himself against. And what is the standard that Paul measures himself against? His standard is not Paul. His standard is not Peter or the Corinthians or the Judaizers. His standard is the word of God, which he preaches. Verse 13 again. We will not boast of things without a measuring stick, but according to the measure of the rule, which God has distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. The same standard that Paul is held by Held to. The same measuring stick that he has to esteem to live up to is the same one that you must live up to, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. A thing which we have all fallen woefully short of, but grace bridges the gap. Romans 3. So we will not boast of things without a measuring stick. We have a measuring stick. It's what God has given us and the same one he's given you. And it ain't each other. 14. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure. Again, he's just running with this metaphor as he's wanting to do. We don't stretch ourselves beyond our ruling, our measuring stick, our ruling, <laughs> as though we reach not unto you. For we are come as far to you also in the preaching of the gospel of Christ. We are on the same level as you when it comes to the judgment of Jesus Christ. An apostle is not on the same level as the Christians. He is, he is above them by God's design. He is an appointed leader of the church. But when it comes to being judged, we're all on the same level. We're all on the same team. We're not stretching ourselves beyond the measuring stick as though we don't reach to you. We have come so close to you as to preaching the gospel to you. Can those Judaizers say that? Can they say we're on your level with you? They can't say that. They don't say that. They always say we're special. We have additional information. We're, we have to be put on a pedestal. We have things that they don't have. They have to say all that because they don't have this. They don't have the book to preach from. They have their opinions, and so they have to sprinkle it up and garnish it and, and flower it up and make it sound more impressive, whatever they're saying, because what they don't have is inspired record. So we have preached the gospel. They have it. God sent us to Corinth. Paul sent to Corinth. God, Paul planted. Paul slaughtered. God gave the increase. But Paul planted. Did a Judaizer plant the Corinthian church? No. 
We preach the gospel to you. Did the Judaizer preach the gospel? No, they preached the law. We, um, we perform miracles in front of you. Did they perform a miracle in front of them? No. We minister to you. Did they serve them? No. Sounds like they're only good at rabble-rousing. They're only good at stirring up trouble. And there's a lot of people who are really good at that and really lousy at Christianity. Verse 15. We are not boasting of things beyond the measuring stick, that is, of other men's labors, but we, having hope, when your faith is increased, that we'll be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. We are judged by the gospel which we preach to you. So when you obey the gospel and you live faithful to the gospel, that's what we get out of it. We don't get a glad hand on the back. We don't get some award. We don't get letters after our name. Look at all that we've accomplished. No. When you obey the gospel, when you're faithful to the gospel, that's our reward. And that's all we need. We don't need a ceremony. We don't need pomp. We don't need circumstance. We just need the fact that you are faithful. People always brag. The people who always brag are the people who have the least reason to. These Judaizers are destroyers. Paul's a builder. They are terror downers. Paul is an encourager, builder, upper. And so when he sees the church of Corinth built up, that's his reward. He gets nothing out of it. His name is not put on the building. He gets nothing out of it in the world. But that's his reward. The Judaizers, they are only of the world. And so they need, they have to have an accolade. That's the difference. 16. Our goal, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready uh, to our hand. More subtle shots fired. He intends to preach the gospel everywhere, even in the regions beyond Corinth. But he would not, however, slip in where someone else had done the work and try to take credit for it. He would not boast in another man's line of things. In another man's, my Bible says, line of things, literal meaning sphere of influence or boundary. Paul is basically accusing, implicitly accusing, the Judaizers of being spiritual carpetbaggers. Paul planted, Paul's water, God gave the increase. Everything is going fine. Then they come in, they act like they're running the show. They act like they've done everything. You didn't do anything. You just walked in here. You don't even go here. Where'd you come from? You came in here, you sit down, you start running the show. Who put you in charge? Who died and made you the ruler? Nobody. Jesus died and he made himself the ruler. And he's not dying again. We don't need your help. We don't need your rule. We don't need your opinions. We don't need your peddling of false doctrine. I'm not saying that it's wrong for someone to move to a new congregation and immediately start teaching. That's good. That's plugging in. That's being active. That's helping and working. But it is a problem when someone comes in, immediately the first time they sit in the pew, they say, all right, this needs to change, and that needs to change, and I don't like this, and I don't like that. Hold on. We like the color of the carpet. We're not talking about doctrine. We're not talking about the Lord's Supper. We're not talking about the preaching of the gospel. We're talking about these things that you don't like. Okay, you don't like it. I don't like some things. I've been here, what, five years? I still have not told you all the things I don't like about you people. And I probably won't for a while. That's just everything. That's normal. Just be, listen, somebody asked me one time, how do I be a better Christian? And it was a short conversation. And I said, quick answer, just don't be a jerk. That is 90% of being a Christian. Is just don't be a jerk. There's obviously lots of things you got to do. But he, he already knows what the Bible says. But the general thing that he used to work on is just don't be a jerk. Because a lot of people think they can hold both of those spheres in their hands. They can have the Bible in this hand and be a jerk in this hand. If you're being a jerk, you're not being much of a Christian. So work on that, and the rest will fall into place. And that's love your neighbor. Don't be a jerk. 10.17. But he that glorifies, if you must boast, if you must say, look at this, it better not be, look at me. It needs to be glory in the Lord. Look at what God has done. It may be something God has done through you. The praise still goes to God. I mean, David... Killed Goliath. And David allowed them to celebrate it because God gave him Goliath. 
It wasn't about him. Verse 18. It is not he that commends himself that's approved, but whom God commends. The moment you start saying, look at the good that I have done, it probably wasn't that good. It's like the, it's like the famous person who was seemingly so humble, they gave him an award. But then they took it away because he kept showing it off. They gave him a medal because he was so humble, but they had to take it away because he kept wearing it all the time. If you're going to be humble, then be humble. And you shouldn't even have to say, everyone, look how humble I am. The very statement is not humble. Like even, and now, now I'm about to say it. I'm about to say it. I shouldn't say it. I'm about to say it. It annoys me when we get up there to pray and we say, God, we come humbly before your throne. Okay, well, the moment you say it, is it really? You know, like I, I get this sentiment and I, I, I trust the sentiment is sincere. So it's just words and I'm just nuts about words like that. But if you have to say it, it kind of loses its value a little bit. Just be humble. Just be humble. God does not lift up the guy who says he's humble. He lifts up the guy who is humble. Distinction. So it's not he that commends himself that's approved, but whom the Lord commends. There's no chapter break. 11 verse 1. Would to God, oh, would to God, the Jew says, would to God that you could bear with me a little in my folly. And indeed, bear with me. In other words, buckle up, because I have to do something that's very uncomfortable. What does he have to do? What is so uncomfortable? I've got to talk about myself. I don't want to have to do it, but I must. Something you have to understand, because it seems kind of weird to us, maybe. It's a different culture. In, in this culture, if you are the kind of person, if you're sitting around, there's a bunch of people talking, and every time the conversation comes to you, you only interject something that you have done lately, or something that has happened to you. We have a situation here. Well, let me tell you what I did recently, or let me tell you what I heard recently. Let me tell you what I had happened to me okay once twice three times a lady but four five six seven times it keeps circling back to you and it keeps circling back to what you've done the greeks would say that person's a fool that person has not learned he has not studied he has not taken the time to consider what anyone else has done to understand that he only knows what he has done he has not lived he has not experienced so we don't need to listen to him he's a fool thus it became this this presumed insult Oh, no, this, oh, I guess a self-insult. You're, you're showing yourself to be a fool when you just talk about yourself all the time. Let me, let me tell you about me. Let me tell you what I've experienced. Let me tell you what I've done lately. So here Paul says, I'm about to do something that is, in my Bible, folly. I'm about to talk about myself. And I don't want to have to do it, but I'm an apostle, and God has put me here. Verse 2, starting with, I'm, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste version to Christ. The metaphor, again, Paul loves his colorful metaphors. I am the one who introduced you, wife to husband. That's a big deal. I'm the one who brought you to your spouse, and you're living happily ever after. At least you're supposed to be. I wouldn't say the Corinthians are living happily ever after just yet, right now. But Paul's the one who introduced these people to their husband, Jesus so it's kind of a big deal. Shouldn't have to talk about it, but you're compelling me to talk about it because these guys over here are attacking me and saying that I'm a do-nothing or I'm a good-for-nothing, and I'm the very ones who let you meet the guy who saved your soul. Kind of a big deal. I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, the same description that God himself uses for Israel. Paul says on a smaller scale, I feel that same way about you. Like, like I have a sense of ownership I put in big air quotes. He doesn't, it's not, Corinth is not his. They belong to Jesus. But he explains himself here. I espouse you to this husband. I presented you this chaste virgin, a bride, to Christ. Three, but I fear, lest by any means, the same way the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, 
I fear that same way your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I fear that I, who have brought you to this husband, am going to have to watch as this, this invading force into your minds, this insidious plot to pull you away from your husband. And you're just letting it happen. You don't even realize it. I fear this happening. So this is why he's talking about himself. It's not about himself. It's about them, and he feels such a strong love for them, and he's being attacked on all sides, and he must defend himself and defend them from these false teachers. Four. For if he that comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which you had not previously received, or another gospel, which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. That's the Corinthians. If some guy comes along, like I, I, I introduced you bride to husband, and the first guy who comes along that looks halfway attractive, you immediately want to get his phone up. You immediately want to listen to him. You immediately want to talk to him. He that comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we didn't preach, or you receive another spirit that we didn't give you, or another gospel, which we didn't tell you to accept, and you get all these other things, you'll bear with them. You'll put up with them. You'll listen to them. So maybe for a change, just for a change of pace, listen to me for a change. You'll listen to any false teacher who walks in the door and looks at you funny and gives you a wink. You'll, you'll immediately listen to any of them. So maybe listen to me. Because I don't think, verse 5, that I am very far, too inferior to the very chiefest apostles, dripping with sarcasm. Because when he's not being sarcastic, Paul will say, I'm the least of the apostles, which he wasn't. He was just as much an apostle as all the rest. A fact which he's having to say here, but his humility, probably his shame, a struggle with self-forgiveness, all the things, if you want to psychoanalyze the man that he has to wrestle with because of his past, he would constantly talk about himself as if he was the lowest of the apostles, the least of the apostles. When he wasn't, he was just as much as any of the apostles, not greater or lesser. But here, he's, he's just on a roll, man, so just let him roll. And he's saying, you just listen to anybody who comes in, maybe listen to me. I don't think I'm too far behind the best of the apostles. Well, no, Paul, you're not. You're actually right up there with them, but that's how they see it. Verse 6. But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, what did they say? He's not much to listen to. His letters are fine. He's not much to listen to. Now, what is that really? What are you really saying here? You're saying, we can't really argue with what he teaches. We just don't like the way it comes out. Oh, well, okay. Too bad. What he's teaching is truth. Deal with it. I say to you who complain about my fast talk sometimes, if it's truth, deal with it. Get the recording and put on closed captioning. I'll work on it. I'll try and slow down. The point is... They say, well, we can't really argue with what he says in his letters. We just don't like the way it sounds. Okay, you superficial namby-pambies. I may be rude in speech, but I'm not rude in knowledge. You never once attacked my knowledge. You can't argue the facts. So I may be rude in speech, but not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. We have been evidently, obviously, and apparently presented as truthful people before you. We have done miracles in your midst, given you miracles to do yourselves, which you then promptly abused, 1 Corinthians 12-14. So you have every reason to believe us. 7. And in knowing us as well as you do, I ask this question, have we committed, have I, Paul, committed an offense in lowering myself that you might be exalted? That was the attack because Paul was base, because Paul was so humble, they took advantage of that. Did I do something wrong by being so humble and abasing myself so that you might be exalted because I preached, for example, the gospel to you freely, literally without pay? He's going to get into that in just a second. Is that, is that it? Is that the problem? Paul did take money from other congregations. He's going to say that in just a second. 
but he did not take money from the Corinthians. Did, did I make a mistake? Should I not have done that? Was that wrong? Is that what opened the door a crack so that these false teachers could get a foot in? Verse 8. I, my Bible says robbed, which sounds very nefarious, but the word just means took money from, voluntarily. I took money from other churches, taking wages from them to do you service. You could not support me financially, so I didn't take your money. They could, so I took theirs, because that's scriptural. That's 1 Corinthians 9. That's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But I didn't take yours. Did that make you think less of me? Did that give them the avenue to attack me that got you thinking, yeah, there's something to that? Why wouldn't he take our money? Does he, does he, is he not as what he says he is? Verse 9, when I was present with you and I was in want, I was chargeable to no man. I didn't take your money. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, financially speaking, in the context. And I will continue to keep myself that way. Not going to change now, but was that what happened? Is that the avenue that the false teachers exploited? Verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. He's been talking quite a bit about himself, and you might call it boasting, whatever you want to call it. Paul's not going to stop because the Corinthians need to hear it. All of Achaia, southern Greece, needs to hear it. And if, Paul, if it makes Paul look bad in the short term, hopefully it'll be worth it to reach them. Why? That's the question that opens verse 11. Is it because I don't love you? God knows. God knows I do love you. What the enemies, his enemies are saying, presumably, that he didn't take their money, so he doesn't love them. Or he didn't take their money, he doesn't really care about them. They weren't as important to him as this other church over here. He had a closer relationship with them. He took their money. You're just a passing dalliance. He didn't take your money. No. In fact, he had a very close relationship with Corinth. You can see it in the, the heartbreak of this letter and the way that he writes to them and the passion that he writes to them. Even when, he, even when he's angry at them and he rebukes them, it comes from a place of love and a desire for them to do better. He greatly loves them. And the closer a preacher is to the church, the much harder that breakup is. And I've seen that. And this is what Paul's going through right now. Not that he will continue to go through with it, but in the moment, that's how he's feeling. Um, so God knows I love you, he tells them. And no one would know better than the Lord. Verse 12. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. Really jumbled kind of phraseology here in the old King James. Paul has penned three letters to this church. You cannot say he doesn't love them. Two of them are inspired, but he makes a reference to a previous one in 1 Corinthians that was not inspired. So at least three letters to them he's written to them because he loves them. He writes to them because he sees the danger that either they put themselves in, 1 Corinthians, or they allow to come into them, 2 Corinthians. So he does what he does to, my Bible says, cut off occasion for them who desire occasion. What does that mean? I am trying to stop the kind of evil people who look to take advantage of bad situations. That's what the devil does. He catches Eve looking at the tree. Did God say you can't have that? Now he's got a foot in the door. Now he's talking to her. I don't know that's exactly how it happened, but that's the, that's the modus operandi of the devil. He sees this Corinthian church. The Judaizers do, but they're working for the devil whether they realize it or not, and they probably don't. So the devil sees this Corinthian church. He sees they're weak. He sees their relationship with Paul is tenuous at best, and now we can bring in this outside influence whose goal number one is just to diminish Paul's power and diminish Paul's influence over them. And in so doing evaporate Paul's influence over the whole region. You can see the big picture goal of Satan here. So he wants to take advantage where there is an advantage to take. My Bible says, cut off occasion for them which desire occasion. Same idea.
Where, that wherein they glory, they may be found even of us. He says the Judaizers glory that they may be found as if they're like us. They boast and they brag and they talk and they try to puff themselves up like they're the apostles, but they are not. They are full of hot air. Verse 13, because they are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. But you cannot actually do that. You can make yourself seem to be an apostle. You can convince people that you are an apostle. You can call yourself an apostle. If you turn on the, the Trinity Network or maybe even local networks like 2 o'clock in the morning, you'll find some guy sweating profusely, pacing some big giant stage, calling himself apostle, initial, initial, last name. That's how it always is. You cannot call yourself an apostle without having your name be two first initials. P apostle something, something, something. Initial, initial, last name. And they, they're an apostle. Why well, he's an apostle. i got to listen to him now. I'm not an apostle. I just graduated from the Memphis School of Preaching. That guy's an apostle. No, no, he calls himself an apostle. Look at me, watch me. I'm Apostle M.L. Martin. Doesn't make it so, just makes it sound stupid. Such are false apostles, 1113. They are deceitful workers transforming themselves into the appearance of the apostles of Christ. In fact, the word false apostle, pseudo-apostolos, pseudo Seemingly, but not actually, pseudo-apostles, pretend messengers. That's Bill 1? Yes. 14. And don't be surprised by that. Don't stand there and clutch your pearls and say, I can't believe somebody would actually pretend to be an apostle. Satan, from the beginning, has tried to appear as if he wasn't Satan. Like, if you knew what Satan's actual agenda was, what his actual goal was, if you could actually see him the way God sees him, you'd be running from him the moment you saw him. But he always presents himself as an angel of light. He will present himself as a messenger of good. Angel, messenger. Like literally an angel? Fine. But the word just means a messenger, a bringer of good things. Like someone promising you riches and glory if you'll just give them some money. Joel Osteen is a messenger of light, seemingly so. But behind the veneer, behind the fake teeth, is Satan. Transformed into an angel of light. I shouldn't attack physically, because that's the whole point I made in the first half of the class. My apologies. I won't cut it out of the video, though. Don't be surprised that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. Verse 15. So therefore it is no shocking thing if his ministers also be transformed as if they were ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Well, let's think about that. Let's, in other words, let's take their works and let's follow their works to its logical conclusion. If you go down the road of, in this case, the Judaizers, if you go down the road of false teachers today, where will that road lead you? Damnation. It will lead you to condemnation. So what will that become of them? Their end will be where they're leading everyone else. Their end shall be according to their works. The Pied Piper will eventually get got himself. So it is not a shocking thing that his ministers are transformed into appearing uh, beings of delivering righteousness. But in the end, God will sort it out. God will reconcile it all. God will balance the scales. Their end will be according to their works. 16. I say again, please don't think that I'm a fool. You keep talking about myself. I don't want to have to do that. Don't think I'm a fool. But if you must, then receive me as a fool. Have pity on me, this poor foolish person. Again, sarcasm. Receive me as a fool, that I may boast myself just a little bit more. Verse 17. That which I speak, I speak not after the Lord, but as it were, foolishly. Seemingly, as it were, seemingly, foolishly. In this confidence of boasting. I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to brag about myself. And that's not really bragging. I don't want to have to give you my resume. 
as these guys do. That's the first thing they do when they come to the door. Here's why you should listen to me. Listen, I should listen to Paul because the words he writes are inspired of God. You should listen to me or not if whether or not what I preach comes from the word of God. If it doesn't, if it's not the word of God, stop listening to me. Make this room scarce. But if what I'm preaching is the word of God, let's make this room full. That's as simple as that. That which I speak, I speak not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly. I'm not talking the way I would want to talk. I must talk as a fool defending myself. The Lord went about his mission quietly. The Lord did not talk about himself. But I can't do that right now. I've got to do it like this. Seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also, he says begrudgingly. 19. For you suffer fools gladly. Sarcasm, sarcasm, sarcasm. You guys just love suffering fools. So here I am. If I have to be a fool, I'll just be right there along with the other boasting Judaizers. You, you love them, so just add me to the number. Seeing you guys are so wise, here I am talking about myself. For you suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you in the face, you'll say, thank you, sir, may I have another? That's you, Corinthians. So surely you can spare a little bit of time to let me talk. Because though I might appear to be talking about myself, I'm actually talking about Christ. It's just I have to use this avenue to get there. The word for we, for sorry, for you suffer, for you suffer by, by what you're doing, how it's going to hurt you. The word suffer is not agony through a hardship, like the way we use the word suffer. That word is pasco in the Greek. This word is anikomai, which means to put up with or tolerate. Like um, when Jesus told John, you have to baptize me even though I haven't got any sense to repent of. And the old Bible says, suffer it to be so now. The old usage of the word suffer, allow, tolerate, put up with, do this thing. You guys allow the people who will put you into bondage. You guys will allow people who will devour you. You guys allow people who will take advantage of you. You guys allow people who will exalt themselves and smite you in the face. So maybe allow me because I won't do any of those things. Verse 21. I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak. Not weak, as though we had been weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. They want to talk about how bold they are. You just just on, uh, just hang on their every word. Oh, this person is so important. How do you know? Because he keeps telling me how important he is. Okay, fine. Everyone listen to me. I'm very important. If that's how it's got to be to get through to you people, that's what I'll say. That will get your attention. I'll say it too. I am bold also. Here it is. You got me bold. Are they Hebrew? So am I. That's, what do they say? You got to listen to me. I know about the law of Moses. I'm a Hebrew. This is my genealogy. This is my connection to Abraham, etc., etc. Paul says, okay, if you want to go down that road, are they Hebrew? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? Talking like a fool here. I am even more. Paul would never say this unless he has to, unless the Spirit is making him put pen to paper, because he doesn't want to do this. He is, as we've seen, meek and mild. Have we already got the second bill? Did I miss it? I haven't heard it. I'm waiting on it. I just saw a little child stick his head out the door. Just a second. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am even more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, more frequently, more often. So what have they done for Jesus Christ? What even do they claim to do for Jesus Christ? Oh, I suffered this. I suffered ten times that. I had to go there. I had to go there three times. I endured that. I endured that twice. Whatever they can say, Paul says, I mean my more. If that's what it takes to get you to listen, 
My resume stacks up to them. Of the Jews, five times, 24, I received 40 stripes minus one. Because according to the law, you can only strike, well, according to the traditions, you can only strike a man 39 times or no more than 40. So one guy would strike you 39 times and then pass the baton to the next guy to strike you another 39 times. Well, you're getting beat, whatever five times 40 is. I don't do math. 200? Is that 200? You got beat 200 times. You should have only been beaten like 39 can you say that? That's how many times he endured for Jesus Christ. Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times suffered shipwreck. A night in the day, floating in the middle of the ocean, not knowing if I was ever going to live. See, not ocean. Well, we'll pick it up there next week. <laughs> Verse 25. Thanks, everybody. You can go home.